Revelation chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins the third principle section of the book as outlined by the Lord Jesus in chapter 1 and verse 19. And if you'll remember back in chapter 1 and verse 19, the Lord spoke to John and he said, I want you to write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. That's the outline of the book. Write the things which you have seen. That was chapter 1, the vision of Christ that John saw. Write the things which are. That was chapters 2 and 3, the, church, the seven churches in Asia Minor. And then write the things which shall take place after these things. And that's chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. In fact, if you'll notice, the first verse in chapter 4 says, After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. And what we have in the rest of the book of Revelation are future things. What we're going to have from here on is prophecy. And it can be divided into three periods. Chapters 6 to 19 deal with the tribulation period, that seven-year period of judgment on the earth. Chapter 20 deals with the millennium, that thousand-year reign of Christ. And chapters 21 and 22 deal with the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, forever. So that'll be the division in the remainder of the book as we look at the prophetic section of Revelation. Now I'd like you to notice first of all the time reference. It says in verse 1 it takes place after these things. You say after what things? Well after the things which are. And what are the things which are? Well that was chapter 2 and 3 where John gave us the seven letters to seven churches, which we said depicts the seven kinds of churches throughout the church age. And seven is the number of completion, so we're given in chapters 2 and 3 really a slice of the complete church age at any given time. It's a composite picture of the church in the first century, the second century, the third century, in any century. And as you look at the church in any given time in its history, you will find seven kinds of churches that parallel the seven churches that we saw in chapters 2 and 3. But beginning in chapter 4, we're going to see what happens after the church. You say, well, wait a minute. What happened to the church? Well, what happens to the church is the same thing that happens to John at this point. John hears a voice like a trumpet, and he is caught up into heaven. That same promise is given to the church. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And the Lord Jesus is going to come and take His church out of this world. That's a fact. The only question is when. 
And there are two major opinions on that. One is that it will happen at the beginning of the tribulation period. The other is that it will happen at the end of the tribulation period. Now, there's a third opinion that it will happen in the middle, but I've never met somebody who holds that opinion, and it's very sketchy. So it's either going to happen at the beginning of the tribulation period or it's going to happen at the end of the tribulation period. That's why when you talk to people who are theologians, they'll say, well, are you pre-trib or post-trib? That means, do you believe you're going to be caught at the beginning of the tribulation or the end of the tribulation? Well, I believe that the church is going to be taken to be with the Lord before the tribulation. Uh, and I thought I would just take a moment this morning to give you a few reasons why I hold that opinion. In fact, I'll give you five. And I'll give them to you quickly because if I had to develop, then it, it would take our entire session this morning. But let me just give you five reasons. You may want to categorize these in your head or write them down and sort of flesh them out yourself and maybe put some verses with them uh, to develop this, this concept. But let me just give you the four major reasons why I hold that position. Number one is the purpose of the tribulation. And if you will go back to Daniel chapter 9 and read verses 24 to 27, you'll find there that Gabriel came to Daniel and he told Daniel that there are 70 weeks decreed for your people until you anoint the most holy. So he came to Daniel and he said, Daniel, you've got 70 sevens, 70 weeks until the kingdom comes. And then he describes 69 of those weeks and he leaves one week left at the end. That one week at the end is the tribulation period, the seven-year period of judgment on the earth. And in Daniel's understanding, or as, as Gabriel spoke to Daniel, he said that these are 70 weeks for your people. Now, who were Daniel's people? Daniel's people was Israel. And so we have 70 weeks decreed for Israel until the kingdom comes. 69 of those weeks take us up to the cross. There is one week left, or one week of years left, and that is the tribulation period. It is going to be a period when God is going to be working once again with Israel. That's the purpose of the tribulation. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 30 calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Israel's trouble. It's a time when God is going to take His church out of the world and then He's going to begin to work again with Israel. When their hardened hearts are going to be softened, when the veil that today lies over their eyes is going to be removed, when those who are most opposed to the gospel are actually going to be the evangelists during the tribulation period. The 144,000 witnesses we're going to find in the book of Revelation are Israelites, 12,000 from each tribe of the people of Israel. And as we've been talking about in the book of Ephesians, the church is a mystery. It's like a parenthesis. And those 69 weeks occur, and then there's silence because God is now working with the mystery, the church, Jews and Gentiles together in the body of Christ. When the church is taken out, that fulfillment of that 70 weeks will be complete with the final week, the tribulation period, which is a time when God is going to be working with Israel once again, and the church will be taken out. Second reason is silence in the book of Revelation. And if you will look in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, which deals with the seven-year tribulation period, you'll find no mention of the church anywhere on earth. In fact, the only mention of the church is in Revelation chapter 19, where it's described as the bride in heaven. 
And so after having so much to say to the church in the first three chapters of Revelation, there is an evident silence when we come to the events of the tribulation period. In fact, if you look at a verse in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 9, it's interesting there. If you remember back in the, in the seven letters to the seven churches, he said one thing to every church, and that is he said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 9, when we're right in the middle of the tribulation period and he's talking about the Antichrist coming and he's warning people about the Antichrist, notice what he says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Period. Why doesn't he say, let him hear what, he has, what the Spirit has to say to the churches? Because the churches are gone. And now it's just, if anybody has an ear, let him hear. Silence in the book of Revelation. Third reason. Christ's coming is imminent. And the word imminent means it could happen at any moment. And throughout Scripture, the hope of the Christian is the return of Jesus Christ. James 5.8 says His coming is at hand. 1 John 3.3 says we're to fix our hope on the coming of Christ. Titus 2.13 says we're to be looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven where we eagerly wait for a Savior. But... If Christ isn't going to come until the end of the tribulation period, then I know that His coming can't be imminent because I know that Jesus can't come until the temple is rebuilt. And I know that Jesus can't come until the judgments described in the book of Revelation come down. And I know that Jesus can't come until the Antichrist rises to power and takes control of this world. So if Christ isn't coming until the end of the tribulation period, you know what I find myself doing? I'm not looking for Christ, I'm looking for Antichrist. And the Christian is told to look for Christ because he could come at any time. That's why John says at the end of this book, even so, come Lord Jesus. His coming is imminent. The uh, Thessalonians had a problem with that. In, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes to them because they were confused and people were telling them that they were already in the tribulation. I'm not going to take the time to take you to that passage, but read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And there they, uh, Paul said, uh, I don't want anybody writing you a letter telling you that, that you're already in the day of the Lord. Because he said the day of the Lord is not going to come until Antichrist is revealed. And Antichrist is not going to be revealed until he who restrains him is taken out of the way. Now who is it that restrains the Antichrist? Who is the only one who can restrain Satan? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. And where is the Holy Spirit? He's inside of believers. So when he is taken out of the way, who else gets taken out of the way? We do. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And when the restrainer, the Spirit of God, the one who restrains Satan is taken out, he's taken out before the Antichrist is revealed. The church is taken out of the world. His coming is imminent. Fourth reason. Christ's coming is comforting. At the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it tells, Paul writes to us about the coming of Christ, the rapture, which we call it, and he says, therefore, I want you to comfort one another with these words. 
Now, the Thessalonians were worried because they were worried about the people who had already died. Their believing brothers who had died, they were worried about what was going to happen to them. And Paul says, don't worry about them because when Christ comes, they're going to rise first and then you're going to be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Don't worry about them. But see, if they thought that Christ was going to come at the end of the tribulation period, they wouldn't be worried about their dead brothers. They'd be thankful that they had died because then they don't have to go through the tribulation period in order to get to the coming of Christ. You see, I don't want to sound like a weenie, but uh, I would just as soon die now as to have to go through this seven-year tribulation period in order to get to the coming of Christ because when we go through this, you're going to see what I mean, and it's not going to be something that I really desire to be around for. If the Lord wants me to be here, I'll be here. If I'm wrong on this, I'll, I'll buy that, okay? But... I would just as soon pass away silently on my bed as to go through this and enjoy the coming of Christ. If that's comforting for you, it's not really comforting for me to know that I have to go through that in order to get to the coming of Christ. And yet, the coming of Christ is presented to us as our hope, as our comfort, and that's why I take it to happen before the tribulation period. It's something we're looking for right now. It comforts us. And then a fifth thing is the necessity of an interval. And the next time we see the church in the book of Revelation, she's riding out of heaven with Christ in Revelation chapter 19 at the end of the tribulation period. We've apparently already had the judgment seat of Christ because we're dressed in white. We've already had our marriage with Christ, which is described in Revelation chapter 19. But if the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation, then where do you fit all those things in? Do we go up into heaven and then come riding back down? You see, I believe that what happens is this. The church is taken out of the world, and during that seven years of judgment when God is dealing with Israel on the earth, God is going to be dealing with the church in heaven. And we're going to have the, what's called the judgment seat of Christ when uh, the Christian's life is examined and rewards are given. And at the end of that seven-year period, we're going to come back with Christ to the earth. And that marriage that's described in Revelation chapter 19 takes place there as well. You see, otherwise, if, if the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation period, my question is, why have a rapture? Because you're going to get to the end of the tribulation period, the Lord's going to come back, we're going to be snatched up into the air, meet the Lord in the air, and you know what we're going to do? We're going to immediately come back down. Go, whew, what are we doing here again? Okay, see, I have a problem with that. Why take me up and bring me right back down? That doesn't make sense to me. The, the rapture has to have a purpose, and its purpose is the second coming of Christ is really in the, these two stages. We're taken up into heaven while God deals with the earth during that seven years, and then we come back with him in Revelation chapter 19. And so I just offer you those points. You can, you can flesh them out yourself. Uh, but the reasons why that I think that the church is caught up uh, before the tribulation period. And so as we start chapter 4, we see John caught up into heaven and I think that is an indication to us that that's the point where also the church is caught up. And what we're going to find in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation is a prologue to the entire prophetic section. And in these two chapters, we haven't really started the tribulation yet. It's going to begin in chapter 6. But during these two chapters, we see John in heaven, and he's going to be taken up to heaven and then shown what happens on the earth. And he hears a familiar voice. He hears the voice he heard in chapter 1 and verse 10. It's the voice that sounded like a trumpet. It's the voice of Christ. And that voice says, come up here. And he is taken up through a door into heaven. 
Now, the word door is used only four times in the book of Revelation, and this is the fourth time. It was used as a door of opportunity for the church in Philadelphia. It was used as the door of salvation to the church at Laodicea twice, and now it's used as a door into heaven. And John apparently is, goes up through this door into heaven, and if you notice verse 2, he says... Immediately I was in the Spirit. Now, I, I just assume John looks at himself when he gets there to say, you know, am I really here or am I not here? And he says, I'm in the Spirit. So it's like he's saying, I'm on Patmos, but I'm also in heaven. You explain that. Uh, he had already told us in chapter 1 he was in the Spirit, but now he sort of moves locations and he says, I'm still in the Spirit. Because I'm, I'm here, but I'm not really here. It's a supernatural uh, act of God that involves him to be in heaven at this point in time. And then, what I want us to see in this chapter, chapter 4, as we look at it this morning, is what John saw in heaven. Because chapter 4 takes place in heaven. And I want to divide it up this way. First of all, I want us to see the scene of heaven. That's verses 2 to 7. And then I want us to notice the activity of heaven. We're going to see what John saw in the, in the, in the scene of heaven, and then we're going to see what's taking place in heaven in, in verses 8 to 11. First of all, the scene is verses 2 to 7. Notice verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Now, I have heard people say that they've gone to heaven and come back to tell us what it's about. Have you heard these people? And they will explain to you how that heaven is full of rolling hills and flowers and they walk through the fields and it sounds wonderful but you know I put a little more credence on what John says here and John says I went to heaven and what did I see I saw a throne and Revelation is a throne book the word throne is used 45 times in the book of Revelation it's only used 15 times in the rest of scripture altogether this is a throne book and everything in heaven is seen in reference to the throne. In fact, if you'll notice verse 2, he talks about being on the throne. Verse 3, around the throne. Verse 5, from the throne. Verse 5, before the throne. And verse 6, in the midst of and around the throne. So everything's happening in relationship to the throne. And I want to just use those clauses, as John uses them in writing here, to describe what he saw in heaven to help us to visualize what he saw. First of all, he talks about what was on the throne. Verse 2, he says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Now, it should be no surprise to us when we get to verse 8, and again in verse 11, we find out that this one who is sitting on the throne is the Lord God. And this tells me something. It tells me that God is not detached from His created universe. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And He is sitting on the throne, which, which describes and indicates for us a permanent occupancy of that throne. He's not, you know, some people are deists today. They say God created everything and kind of spun it off somewhere, and He's, he's busy doing something else. Where it tells us here, God is on the throne of the universe. And He is overseeing with His sovereign control everything that goes on. And then John describes him in verse 3. And he says, And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. John says, I looked on the throne, 
And the one sitting there was like a jasper stone and like a sardis stone. You say, well, that's kind of vague, isn't it? You know, I was hoping for maybe a little more detail about whether he had a beard or, or those kind of things. Well, you know, uh, Scripture tells us, John 4, 24 tells us that God is spirit. And Colossians 1.15 tells us God is invisible. And 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us He dwells in unapproachable light. In fact, that same verse tells us no man has seen Him or can see Him. God can't be seen. In fact, I find no evidence in Scripture that we will ever see the Father. John 1.18 tells us it is Jesus through whom we see the Father. He came and explained the one who can't be seen to us. And I see no indication that that's going to change in heaven. Christ is the one who represents the Father to us. And so, as John sees this one on the throne, we get about as much as we're going to get. He says he looks like two precious stones. The first one he mentions is, he says he's like jasper. Look at Revelation chapter 21. I'll show you what that means. Revelation 21, verse 11. Speaking here about the new Jerusalem. It says, The new Jerusalem came down out of heaven from God, verse 11, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Jasper is crystal clear. It's like a diamond. It's the color of light. And he tells us there in Revelation 21 that it relates to glory. And so as John looks, he sees this jasper clear stone and it speaks of God's glory. And then he sees a second stone and that is the Sardis stone. And the Sardis stone is blood red. And what does that speak of? It speaks of redemption. It speaks of sacrifice. And I like that. So as John looks on the throne, what does he see? He sees this shining crystal clear stone speaking of the glory of God. And he sees this blood red stone speaking of the sacrifice of God. As he looks at God, he sees two things, his glory and his sacrifice. His glorious majesty and his sacrificial love are what stand out to John as he sees the one on the throne. And then the second thing he tells us is what's around the throne. And what is around the throne? Look at the end of verse 3. He says, And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. He looks at the throne and he sees the one on the throne and around the throne he sees a rainbow. And it's like an emerald which would be bright green transparent stone. And so it's bright green but it's transparent. You can see through it. And it's a rainbow. You know, the problem with rainbows on the earth is we only get to see part of them because they only come down to the horizon. But this rainbow encircles the throne. It's in heaven. And there is no horizon, and so it completely encircles the throne. And what does a rainbow speak of? A rainbow speaks of God's faithfulness. He put the rainbow out there and said, I'm going to be faithful and I will never destroy the earth again with a flood. Isn't that exciting? When we look at the throne of God in heaven, what do we see? A rainbow. Only this time it's a complete rainbow. Speaking of the complete faithfulness of God, that means there will be no judgment in heaven. God is faithful. And that's an exciting concept. And then there's something else around the throne. And that's in verse 4. 
He says, And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. There are twenty-four thrones around the throne, and on these twenty-four thrones are twenty-four elders. Now you say, well, who is this? Well, I have spent hours, mega hours, trying to figure out who this is. And I've read everybody I can read, and I've, I've sort of condensed it into three possible interpretations that most people hang on to. One is they say this, these are angels, that these elders are angels, and uh, they're sitting there in heaven. Uh, I have a problem with that because they're wearing crowns. And these crowns are not the, not the Greek word diadem, but it's the Greek word stephanos. It's the victor's crown that they're wearing. These are the same crowns that are offered to us as rewards in Scripture. I have trouble seeing the angels wearing these crowns. So I really think he's talking here about people, human beings. There's a second popular interpretation, and that is that this is representative of the church. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, Aaron divided the priestly family into 24 groups because there were too many priests. And so he divided them into 24 groups and they sort of had a, a lottery to see who would serve in the temple at a given time. And you remember, even in the time of John the Baptist, you'll remember if you read in Luke chapter 1 that Zacharias was there because his lot had been chosen and his division was serving at that time. So only 24 served, but they represented a larger number. And so the number 24 seems to be a number in Scripture associated with representing a larger number. Now, on that basis, some people take this 24 elders and say, uh, since the church is now the priest, Revelation chapter 1, verse 6 says, we are a kingdom of priests, that this 24 spoken of here represents the church as a whole, and it's speaking of us being there in heaven. Now, my problem with that is if you look over in Revelation chapter 19, and you look in verse 4, you'll find the 24 elders are mentioned there worshiping God and shouting hallelujah. In verse 7, they're shouting hallelujah because the bride is ready to be presented to Christ. Now, if the 24 elders are the bride then I have problems with them shouting hallelujah while they're being presented. So there must be a distinction here between the bride and the 24 elders. There's a third popular interpretation, and that is that these 24 elders represent the 12 apostles and the 12 children of Israel. 12 and 12, 24. Uh, and that really applies to a promise made by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 19, 28, where he said to the disciples, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And when we come to the, the city, the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21, interestingly enough, it tells us that on the twelve gates of that city are the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, and on the twelve foundation stones are the names of the twelve apostles. So that seems to make sense. My problem with that is, I somehow have problems seeing Reuben and Simeon and Judah, those guys sitting there on these thrones, and not Abraham and Moses and Joshua, the guys who, you know, those guys were kind of, you read about them in the Old Testament, they're kind of scudsy guys. 
Uh, in fact, if you look carefully in Revelation 21, you'll see that he doesn't say it's the names of the sons of Israel. He says it's the names of the tribes of Israel that are written on the gates. So he's not even bringing those individuals into play. He's talking about the tribes that they represent. So I have problems with that interpretation as well. So I've basically thrown out the three popular interpretations. Uh, you say, well, then who do you think they are? Well, let me preface this by saying I couldn't find anybody who agreed with me. Uh, so I'm standing on pretty lonely ground when I tell you this. I think that these elders are elders. Now, is that profound? I think that these 24 elders are 24 elders. And you know, there's, there's an interesting promise made to elders in Scripture. It's made in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. All Christians are promised a crown of righteousness. All Christians are promised a crown of life. But there's a special crown promised to elders, pastors, shepherds, overseers. And that, that crown is called the crown of glory. And he says, for those elders who serve well and don't serve selfishly and set an excellent example for the flock and love the flock, he said, when the, when the chief shepherd shall appear, I'll give you a crown of glory. What are these elders wearing? They're wearing crowns, and they're in glory. And I think he's talking here about elders. Now, whether the number is a literal 24 or whether that's representative of a larger number, I hope it's a larger number because I'm not going to get in if there's only 24. Uh, but he's, he's given a, a special promise to elders, and that promise is going to be fulfilled in 1 Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd shall appear. And I believe that Jesus appears at this point in time. He takes the church to be with himself, and he fulfills that promise to those who receive that crown of glory and sit around the throne of God. And then third, we'll see what comes from the throne. And that's in verse 5. And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. From this throne comes lightning flashes and peals of thunder. Now, those are things associated with judgment. That's why you duck whenever you hear thunder or see lightning. It's something associated with judgment, and it will be associated throughout this book with judgment. We will see these things flashing down. We saw it on, the, on, on Mount Sinai when God came down with the law. It's associated with judgment. But what this tells me is the judgments that we are going to read about in the next 15 or so chapters come from the throne of God. God is in control of the judgments that are taking place on the earth. Then fourthly, we see what happens before the throne. And what do we find before the throne? End of verse 5. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now we saw that in chapter 1 and verse 4, and there we explained it to you in detail that these seven spirits are not really seven spirits, but the, words, the number seven, again, associated with completeness or perfection. And what he's talking about here is the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. And then there's something else before the throne, and that's verse 6. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, I don't know what this is exactly, 
but I would tend to associate with something in the Old Testament. And in the tabernacle, they had a laver, which was a place where the priests came and ceremonially cleansed themselves. It was called the laver. It was made out of brass in the tabernacle. But when they built the temple in uh, 1 Kings chapter 7 and verse 23, it says they built a cast metal sea. And that's the word that they use. Which means they built uh, uh, this, it was about, it was 15 feet across. And it was cast metal, which was the closest thing they had to a mirror. And so when you looked into it, the water was there, but it had a mirror reflection all around. And it was the laver, but it was called the sea in the Old Testament. And the, 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 the priests would have to come and ceremonially wash themselves in this laver before they could come into the presence, into the holy place and the holy of holy places where God was. And of course that represents to us the idea of cleansing ourselves. We are clean by the blood of Christ, but we have to confess our sins in order to have that cleansing in our life as well. But what's exciting to me is when you walk into the presence of the Lord, you're going to find a sea of glass like crystal. And there's no water there. There's nothing there to be cleansed with. It's a sea of glass like crystal. In in fact, in chapter 15 and verse 2, it says men are standing on it. And what does that tell me? That tells me that there's no need for cleansing there because we're already like the Lord Jesus. And when I get to heaven, I will never have to come to him again and say, Lord, I've sinned, because there'll be no sin there. I'll never receive that look that Peter got when he was standing out in the courtyard and he got that look from Christ and he went out and wept bitterly. I'll never have to go through that again because the, the, the cleansing place is, is solid crystal because we'll be like the Lord Jesus and there'll be no sin there. And then we see what is in the midst of and around the throne, finally. And that's in verse, the end of verse 6. He says, And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Now, that's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? Four, not beasts, four living beings. And they've got six wings, they've got eyes everywhere, and they've got the faces of lion, a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. If you will go back to the book of Ezekiel, Read Ezekiel chapter 1 and read Ezekiel chapter 10. Because there Ezekiel saw a vision. And if you read it in chapter 1 and don't understand it, join the, the crowd. Because it's a complex vision that he saw. But he saw something like a whirlwind and there was a dark cloud in front of the whirlwind and there was fire there as well. But out of that vision came four living beings in Ezekiel chapter 1. And in Ezekiel chapter 10... Ezekiel describes who those living beings are, and he says they are cherubim, which is a kind of angel. And you'll even read that they had these same faces that he talks about here. The only difference is they only had four wings. 
But if you come to Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 2, you'll find that there is another group of angels called seraphim, and they have six wings. So that may be who this is, because in Isaiah chapter 6, what they're saying is holy, holy, holy before the throne. So I'm not worried about trying to describe all this detail here, because what he's doing is he's describing for us some other creatures in God's universe, which are angels. And there are many categories of angels, archangels and seraphim and cherubim and so forth. And that's what he's describing for us here, these living beings before the throne. And so John sets the scene for us here in relationship to the throne. And then real quickly, I just want you to see the activity of heaven. What's going on in heaven? Look at verse 8. And it says, And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. These four living beings, these cherubim or seraphim, whatever they are, angel beings, are crying out day and night. They never stop. And they're saying, holy, 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 which indicates the Trinity. They are saying, the Lord God is the Almighty. That's, he's all-powerful. And then they are, they are praising Him for His being the Eternal One, the One who was and who is and who is to come. And then notice verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying... The four living creatures are kind of like the cheerleaders. And they start worshiping God, and when they start worshiping God, the 24 elders look on and they begin to worship God as well. And they begin to give Him glory and honor and thanks. And they get down off their thrones... And they prostrate themselves on the ground, which is what worship really means. It's the word pro to prostrate yourself before another and to give him the worth. They get down off their thrones and they prostrate themselves in worship before the Lord God. And as a further act of homage, they take off these crowns that he has given to them and they cast them at his feet in worship. Those crowns which were received because of service for Christ are an opportunity to give glory to Him in that day. And then they say, verse 11, Worthy art Thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou didst create all things, and because of Thy will they existed and were created. They are singing worth and praise to the Father as well. What's going to be the activity of heaven? It's going to be worship. Day and night, continuous wor worship of the one who is worthy. And let me just say this to you this morning. If you haven't learned how to worship the Lord now, you're going to be real out of place there because that's going to be the activity of heaven. And we need to be learning how to worship him now. And let me say this as well. I don't want to be there someday without a crown to throw at his feet. And crowns are the rewards we're offered in Scripture. I want to have something to give back to him and praise to him. And so as we serve Him here, I think we need to be cognizant. The rewards we get are not something we're going to hoard up someday in selfishness because there'll be no sin there. There'll be no selfishness there. The reward we get will be a crown that we'll be able to offer to the Lord to give Him praise forever. And that's an exciting motivation. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You today for this glimpse 
into heaven. And Lord, there are things that, that confuse us a little bit, but it doesn't confuse us when we read that you're the one who sits on the throne in the center of all the universe. And you're the one who receives the honor and the glory and the praise. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize that that's the activity of all the other creatures in the universe except for those of us that have fallen into sin. And Lord, I pray that we might learn truly, even in this sinful world, as your children, to worship you and to serve you so that we will one day have a crown to cast in worship at your feet. And Lord, we just give you the praise with our lips today and pray that we might go from here to give you praise with our lives as well. In Jesus' name, amen.